You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So before we begin the class, I'm just, uh, I want to answer a question that was just raised um, regarding um, the previous class, where I had mentioned that the uh, convention, if I may, is that the Beis Hillel were more, um, you know, nicer and gentler and kinder, while Beis Shammai was considered to be strict and severe. And the question was that in the previous class, we seemed to suggest that it was the other way around, um, that, that maybe Shammai was the more um, virtuous, um, if, if I may. But uh, the, the answer to that is that I, I do think that uh, we, we do have it very much wrong in this impression that we have of Beis Hillel being gentle and nice and everything is fine and Shammai being this strict and severe. It, neither of those is true on its own. Bet Hillel, the, um, the school of Hillel, they were rabbis who focused a lot on giving people you know, the benefit of the doubt and of remaining calm in the face of, uh, of difficulty. But that doesn't mean that they didn't have a severe streak when they felt that that was called for. And the same thing with Shammai, the other way around. The, the people of Shammai are not angry, bitter, vicious people like you sometimes see people who are always lashing out. That's not what Shammai is about. They had a, a system, they had a cheshbon, they had a calculation, they had a seder, a way of living which led them to be this way. And I'll prove this to you. So we have a Mishnah in Pirkei Avot. The Mishnah in Pirkei Avot is... Everybody knows, Pirkei Avot was each of the rabbis' statements you know, that sort of sums up the way they approached life. And I mentioned last week that Shammai is the one who says, I'll read to you the, the Mishnah straight, uh, straight out of the text. Um, Shammai Omer, Asei Torah Chakva, make your Torah study fixed, Emor ma'at harbe, speak a little and do a lot. And you should accept everybody. With a smile. That, that's Shammai. On the other hand, Hillel, now we know Hillel says a very nice thing. Hillel says, Hillel Omer. You should be of the students of Aaron. Ohev Shalom, Verodef Shalom, Ohev Atabriot. You should love people. Umekarvan la Torah and bring them close to the Torah. That sounds like the Hillel you've imagined, right? You should be Ohev Shalom and Verodef Shalom. Then, Hu Haya Omer. It goes on to teach us more things that Hillel said. And one of those things, is actually a few Mishnayot later, is Hillel, this is a Mishnah in Pirkei Avot. Af hu ra'a gulgolet achat shetzafa apne hamayim. Hillel saw a skull, gulgolet achat, a skull, floating on the water. Amar la, he said to the skull, al da'ateft, you um, were, were drowned because you drowned someone else. And whoever drowned you is going to drown as well. Does that sound like Hillel? Does that not sound like something you would expect Shammai to say? So I, I think, if I may say anything, it's the following lesson. I, I think this is a lesson for life. People are a lot more complicated than we allow them to be. We say, oh, that person, that's a nice person. What does it mean that's a nice person? That's not a nice person. That is a beautiful, amazing, complicated human being. And to sum them up in, in sort of one character, oh, that person, oh, they're really quick. They're, they're witty. They're funny. Those may be things, but you know, summing people up like that um, and also, you know, telling when, when people behave a certain way, we kind of expect them to always react in the same way. And people aren't like that. There's, people can be nuanced. 
a, a person can think one way in one situation, and then even though it looks like a similar situation, it could be different, and people can be a different way. Shammai can be severe when it's time to be severe, but if you're not someone who deserves his severity, he will treat you with the friendliness, maybe more than even a student of Hillel. Okay? What's wrong with Hillel that says that if you, if whoever kills you is going to be killed? I mean, you know, it's fair. It, it may be, but you know, when you see a skull floating on the water, if that's your first reaction, is to think, huh, there's a skull, that means that this person was drowned. And you know why they were drowned? I know. Because this skull is the skull of a murderer. And that's why he was drowned, because he drowned someone else. But you should know, there will be vengeance, because the person who drowned this person, that person will also be drowned. So jumping to conclusions. Jumping to con but also jumping to this kind of severe conclusion, where now everyone's a murderer, uh, that, that's, you know, I, I, I'm not saying it's wrong, I'm not saying it's bad, I'm just saying that's not the way we typically... Um, uh, visualize or, or, or characterize um, what we'd expect from Hillel. Okay, so uh, we're beginning today's class. Um, today's is it the fourth class in this shiur in this series. Yeah, so this is um, um, shiur arba. Today's topic is um, is the machloket between Rabbi Shimon. And Rabbi Yehuda. Now, this this class, the one we're about to do, requires a little bit of. Let's go with historical background. So, let's just let's just lay out the information. The Beit Hamikdash, the Second Temple, was destroyed about the year seventy about the year 70. So that's about 1,950 years ago. The second Beit HaMikdash was destroyed. This is considered one of the greatest tragedies of the Jewish people, and that's a long list of competition, of great tragedies that we, the Jewish people, experienced. But the destruction of the Temple is considered to be amongst the worst. This is why Tisha B'Av, even though we, we um, commemorate a number of tragic events on, on Tisha B'Av, but the primary tragic event which we're commemorating is the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, again, in about the year 70. The Jewish people are a very difficult people to govern. Right? To be a, a president over three million presidents is, is, is not easy. It's, it's, uh, we are a difficult people to govern, and the Romans had just as much of a difficult time as anyone else. Why are we difficult? Why? That's a good question. It's an excellent question. Um, hopefully we'll get into it a little bit, but the simple answer is because the Talmud tells us that Yisrael azim sheba'umot. We are the most brazen of the nations. Uh, there's some debate as to what that means. What is Azim? What does Az, Az mean? So usually, az, and the reason why it's, it's so hard is because, as you all know, the word Az, which means bold or brave, can be used in a negative way, and it could also be used in a positive way. For example, Hashem says to, um, Hashem says to Moshe, I'm going to wipe the Jewish people out because they did the sin of the Egel. So, Moshe says, No, no, Hashem, you have to forgive them. Ki am kishe orefu. But the reason why Hashem, you should forgive us, is ki am kishe orefu. We are a stubborn, stiff-necked people. Why is that a reason why Hashem should forgive us? That's a, that's a reason why Hashem should destroy us. Because we're stubborn and, and stiff-necked. And the answer is, because every quality can be used for the good, or it can be used for the bad. Even stubbornness and kshe'oref, which means a stiff neck. You're just, ah, and frustrating. So that's, that can be a good thing too. Because we, the Jewish people, 
are stubborn. And even when nations try to subvert us and try to turn us into something else, we refuse to give in. And think about it, 2,000 years of exile, 2,000 years of Galut almost, and we're still around. And basically, we're about the same. We've upgraded, we now wear better shoes than we did 2,000 years ago. We, we now have um, classes by Zoom in those days. They didn't have that option. But otherwise, how different are we really? Uh, 2,000 years later, we're still around and still... So we are Azim, and that's the simple answer. Although, um, as we get further into this class, we'll see that there's, there's more to this element about why the Jewish people are so hard to govern. Uh, uh, the, because of this, the Jewish people kept forming rebellions against the Romans. We did not appreciate what the Romans were doing, and so we would have these rebellions where we would fight against the Romans. The Romans would send in garrisons and legions to destroy us, and uh, they, they, there would be a fighting, and then they would leave, and we would start a new rebellion. This lasted, this lasted until the Bar Kokhba rebellion. The Bar Kokhba rebellion was the biggest and most severe and would end up being tragic for the Jewish people. But at that time, the rebellion, which actually lasted for years, and Bar Kokhba had quite a bit of success in his rebellion against the Romans. Technically, he formed his own government for a number of years. They even minted coins, and this is not just theory, there are people who have the Bar Kokhba coins um, that, that, were, that, that were minted. That's how advanced of a, of a government they had developed. And the Romans had enough. Enough. We need to squash the Jewish rebellion once and for all. And so Hadrian sent in... Do you know how hard it is to capture Masada? Everyone here, I'm sure, has been on Masada. Do you know how long it took them? How many people were they capturing? How many people were at the top of Masada? Why would they waste thousands of soldiers and thousands of man-hours to capture Masada? For one reason, to send a message. The rebellion is over, no matter where you go, no matter what you do, we will find you and we will destroy you. So stop rebelling. That was the message. Because otherwise, what's the point of having um, people surround and besiege you know, the, the mountain of Masada and really all the other... When, as a response to the Bar Kokhba rebellion the Romans destroyed Eretz Yisrael. They killed hundreds of thousands of Jews and left the country a wasteland. And then, when they felt like the lesson had been taught, the Romans decided to rebuild Eretz Yisrael. They, they started rebuilding the infrastructure, they started uh, buildings and all kinds of things, and from where the country was, which was desolation and waste, the Jewish people found that things were reawakening. Cities were opening back up again. Towns were opening back up again. The Romans were putting in new buildings and new infrastructure that was allowing the country to thrive again. And here is where we get this statement in the Talmud. This is Masechet Shabbat, Daflamet Gimel. And I quote, The Yatvei, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Shimon. Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yossi, and Rabbi Shimon were sitting together V'yativ Yehuda ben Gerim Gabayu, and Yehuda ben Gerim was sitting next to them. He was called ben Gerim because his parents were converts. So he was called ben Gerim. This was not a name that was given to him by 
by um, by Jews in an insulting way. Today, if you called someone Ben Gerim, they may take offense at it. But this was a name that the Gerim themselves would take because they want to tell people that they are a Ger, so they would call themselves Ben Gerim. Today, we we use for a Ger Ben Avraham and Ben Sarah, but in in he, they they were called Ben Gerim. So there are four people here: Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Shimon. And this man called Yehuda ben Gerim. Patach Rabbi Yehuda v'amar. Rabbi Yehuda opened and he said, Kaman na'im masehem shal umazu. How beautiful are the actions of the nation, the Romans. Tiknu shvakim. They set up markets. Tiknu gisharim. They, they're building bridges for us. Tiknu merchatzaot, they are putting up bathhouses. So Rabbi Yehuda starts to talk about how wonderful it is what the Romans are doing by rebuilding Eretz Israel. Rabbi Yossi shatak. Rabbi Yossi was quiet. Nana Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai gets up and he says, Everything that they have fixed, it's all not for our benefit, it's for their benefit. You know why they set up markets? Because they want harlots to be in our cities. You know why they put up bathhouses? Because they like pleasure, the Romans. They're hedonistic. And they want us to somehow buy into this. Gisharim, you know why they put up bridges? So that they can collect taxes, they can collect tolls. Halach Yehuda ben went to Yehuda ben Gerim. And he told people, he revealed to people, this conversation. We have to remember how dangerous it is when we repeat private information. It's very dangerous. So this Yehuda ben Gerim went and told people. V'nishmu l'malchut and the government found out. Amru they said, Yehuda, she'ilah yit'aleh. Rabbi Yehuda who praised us He's going to get a promotion. And he actually became a Roman-appointed representative ambassador of the Jewish people. They gave him a, they gave him a promotion. Yossi Shashatak Yigalel Tsipori. Yossi, who was quiet, he should go into exile to the city of Tsipori. Shimon Shigina Yehareg. And Shimon, who... Shimon, who spoke negatively about us, he should be killed. Now, we're not going to read the rest of the story. Some of you know the story that Rabbi Shema Bar Yochai went to hide in a cave um, for many years, whatever that story was. But the point is, we have a debate between Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Shimon. The debate is, is the fact that the Romans, forget about, forget about what the Romans did in the past, but the fact that the Romans are now occupying Eretz Israel and rebuilding it, is that to be looked at in a positive light? Or is that to be looked at in a negative light? And we, let me explain. The, and I, I understand there's many points here, but the two things that they focus on is Rabbi Yehuda says, let's look at the benefits. Let's look at the benefits. We don't have the, a, a system to be able to build bridges. The Romans are building bridges for us. They're building markets. They're doing things for us that we would not be able to do. So we have to be grateful. What does Rabbi Shimon say? Rabbi Shimon says they're doing it for their own benefit. When they put up these things, it's so that they can make money and that they can do things. Now, Rabbi Shimon, why is that a bad thing? Why is that a bad thing? So, 
uh, that's what I'd like to get into a little bit to try to, to, to talk about this. But essentially, what we are dealing with is a very, very old question. And the question is a question of foreign occupation. In, if you go back even 150 years, if you go back, I mean, even, even less than that, but if you, the more time you go back, you go back into a world of colonialism. Colonialism is a very strange concept to us. It's a very strange idea to us. Here you have these countries in Europe who have decided that they are not making enough money, they don't have enough power. You know what they're going to do? Take over someone else's country. So, France, England, the Netherlands, Spain, Portugal, all of them decided to take boats, go down to Africa, and just declare themselves rulers over these countries. What they will tell you is that yes, yes, it's true that we are occupying someone else's country, but it's for their benefit. It's for their benefit. I'm playing devil's advocate here, as you can all understand, but I want you to think about it from the, the way that they're looking at it. It's for their benefit. Right now, they've got nothing. They will remain with nothing. They're not going to develop. They're not looking to develop. By us coming in here and sharing with them all the knowledge that we've learned, so in exchange for some of the gold and oil and whatever and the diamonds that we're going to extract from there, we will provide these people with more than they have ever had. Uh, to us, that sounds illogical. But I, I'm, I want to see, is there someone who can suggest, why is that illogical? Why would it be bad to occupy a country if you could, in theory at least, prove that you are benefiting the life of the individuals of that place? It's true. I think um, I'm, I'm looking from uh, Ghana, for example, and versus the other countries next to Ghana. Ghana has benefited because of the English rule. The English were really good. Yeah, but in comparison to other Francophone countries where France was uh, the, the conqueror, they did not do as well. Right, so, so you're defending the colonial... I'm asking, uh, what would be the argument the other way? How would someone respond to the question of, we are improving the quality of life of every person in this country, why would it be bad to occupy and, and uh, overtake someone else's country if it's for the benefit of its citizens? Because I don't think it's true that... I don't think it's true that they benefited everybody. I'm sure they had to kill somebody, some people to subdue some people who did not cooperate. Nobody wants to be ruled by somebody else. And they, they extract the goods and they took them to their country. They did not leave the diamonds there. They took them to Europe. Right. So they really... Right, right. But again, we're trying to keep this a little more in the theoretical. Uh, I know that uh, some, sometimes that's a little harder, but, but uh, the reason why I want to keep it in the theoretical is because let's assume that they are benefiting them. Okay, you're right, that in too many of these cases there were so many abuses uh, of, of, of basic human rights that, that you couldn't even get away with that excuse. But we're saying in theory, they were suggesting that we are benefiting this country by by um, I introducing you know, advances in technology which will make their life better. So if that's true, assuming that that's true, and I know, let's assume, everybody agrees. You're going to have to kill some people, you're going to have to hurt some people. But, but overall, isn't there a benefit? Well, you assume that the uh, uh, physical benefit is the most important thing, and it's not necessarily true. So, so what would be more important than that? Uh, what's more important than that is the, the uh, general morality, the, uh, you know, the, the people, uh, uh, culture, whatever. Who, who, has, who has the right to say that physical benefit is a top priority? 
Well, what if I told you that I can also give them a moral benefit? Because I'm going to introduce into this country uh, a country of pagans and, and people of ancient things, that's and I'm going to teach them how to be civilized. Again, that's judgment. That's your judgment, but it's not necessarily... You have no right to do... You have no more right than they do. All right, I, 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 w I want to push this further because I, I think that that's a very important point. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back on what you just said. I understand these people live in a backwards society where they are guilty already of, of doing horrible things. Let's say I come into a country that actually still performs human sacrifice, right? So human sacrifice, I think we can put that at the top of the list of being uncivilized. Right? So, if I come in and I'm going to teach them a better way of being, I know this is wrong, but I want you to explain to me why it's wrong. Um, because you're not God. You are not God. You are, you, I mean, it's, you're taking too much in your hands, which you are, I don't think we are uh, It's just supposed to do. Well, aren't we doing, doing this all the time? When we teach people morals, if you, if you see, see someone who's doing something wrong and you say, hey, you know, that's not a nice thing to do. If, let's say, you see someone insult someone and you say, you know, you should be nicer, aren't you also judging and trying to make that person better? And who said, who said you are imposing your own values on other people? People have their values, they have their way of life, and who says that your way of life is better than the other people? Well, I'm making... Uh, you are enslaved them in uh, morally and spiritually in your ways. That's now, I want to... Yeah, I, I want to make it clear. We're not talking about the, the people who enslaved people. You know, those are... No, I'm they, talking yeah. spiritually slaving. I'm not talking about slaving physically. You are making people like the Romans where they were trying to impose their way of life. It's not, it was not just the physical occupied. When you're occupying that you are totally controlling everything, okay. it's the name of progress that's not enough to occupy somebody else. Okay, so I'm hearing a consensus, and that is, it's very important to look at it this way, because that's really the point of where we're going. This whole thing is to lead to this point that uh, I think the two of you just, just um, explained, which is when, yes, if you can come into a country and, and fix the country and help the people, that's an act of charity. But occupation has a price. If all you are wanting to do is just help us, then you would send us a check for a trillion dollars. You would send boats filled with food and supplies and, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, um, waterless toilets. You can do that. But you're doing more than that. For the, for the purpose of claiming to benefit us, you are occupying. And there's a price that comes with occupation. So what, we're, what the real debate here is between these two rabbis is is the benefit gained by the presence of the Romans better for us than the cost of the presence of the Romans? Which is, which is more important? Having the benefits that the Romans give us or avoiding the problems that the Romans are causing for us? So, Rabbi, it, depends on, it depends on the intention. The intention of colonialism was to exploit. The intention of the Romans was to build and to stay. Well, so intentions are very important. I, I wouldn't say that the Romans. The Romans were trying to grow their empire. They wanted power. They were not. They did not move through the world because they felt like the world needed more. It was for their benefit, but. In the process, there is a mutual benefit for the countries that they came into as well. Because they brought their new technologies, they brought their infrastructure, and they built, they built bridges. We still have Roman bridges today. That's how good they were at building bridges. They're still there. You can cross them today. Actual Roman bridges. So, so you, you've, um, th there is a great benefit. So this debate between the rabbis is really this 
age-old debate. And it goes through the generations. I know colonialism was a big time, but this happens as well in even a hundred years ago. The land of Israel, the state of Israel today, is relatively new in, in the, the modern state of Israel, because up until then, it was under the control of other nations. Now, when the British owned um, the area, were we better off or were we not? The British provided protection, they provided, but they were also, um, you know, they've got their own way of life and their own ideals, and they were imposing their ideals. But I want to add into this a statement from the Talmud in Barachot. Um, there is a beautiful custom that uh, many, too many people don't, don't adopt. And that is during the tefillah, at the end of the tefillah, a person is supposed to insert a personal private prayer. Yeah. Our tefillah is, is scripted, basically. You open the sidur and you read. But there isn't room, there, there's nothing in the sidur, there's no space where it says that you should compose your own tefillah. But there is a beautiful custom that many have at the end of the Amidah that they insert their own tefillah, whatever words you want. And the Talmud in Brachot records for us what many of the rabbis used for their personal prayer. And I find it ironic that some Sidurim, they have these personal prayers of the rabbis printed in the Sidur, which I think a little bit misses the whole point. Right? Of the, um, okay, but here's where it says, Rabbi Alexandri, that was his name, Rabbi Alexander, Batar de Matzli, after he finished praying, Amar, Hachi, this is what he said, Ribon Ha'olamim, Master of the World, Galui v'yadua lafanecha, it is known, it is revealed and known before you, Shiretzoneinu lasot retzonecha, it is our will to do your will. I want to do the right thing. But not just I want to do the right thing. Galui v'yadua lafanecha, God, you know I want to be a good person. Umim akev. But there's something stopping me. You know what's stopping me? Two things. Soor shebi'isa v'shibud malchiyot. There's two things that are stopping me from being able to serve you, God. The first is the soor shebi'isa. The Seor Shabi'isa is a euphemism. It means, Seor Shabi'isa literally translates as the leavening in the dough, the sourdough in the dough, which is a reference to your Yetzer Hara. You are the dough and the poison inside of you that's causing you to inflate and to leaven. That's one thing that's holding me down. But also, Shibud Malchiot. And being in exile under the subjugation of the nations, it's holding us down. It's holding us down from fulfilling the will of God. And many of the commentaries explain that what this really means is that there are two factors. There's internal factors, there's parts inside of me which make it difficult for me, but there's parts outside of me. So according to this statement in the Talmud, what happens when you are occupied and under the control of someone else is that you lose a certain amount of free will. Now why do you lose free will by foreign occupation? It's because there is a force that's trying to take you away from the way that you want to live your life. And I think that's what someone said before, is that it's really an imposition of culture. You're imposing your culture on us and forcing us to live a certain way when we want to live a different way. Now, why is that better if it's my own country that's imposing a certain culture? Why is that different than when a foreign government imposes their culture? 
So I think we can all understand the difference. Because we're all in this place because we're all here. In other words, the Jews in Eretz Israel want to live as Jews in Eretz Israel. So if the government of Eretz Israel tells us that we're supposed to keep certain things and maintain certain things, then we are within our general will. But when some foreign entity comes in and starts to impose their way of life, we consider that to be an interference and something that's removing our free will. Now, free will... It's not removing your free will, it just makes it more uh, costly to do what you wish to do. Right, but that's what all external factors on free will cause. So if I, if I, if I don't want you to touch the uh, cookie jar, and so I, I electrify it, so it's a different kind of removal of free will, but you're it's not... not necessarily. It's not necessarily. You can... I will take the, the lesson that you taught us before with Bet Shammai and Bet Hillel. You could be influenced with, uh, from other culture and adapt few things from the other culture and still remain yourself. Yeah. You see it today, the modern way of life. That, 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 that's true. You, you can, we're, we're talking about a little bit, something a little different. You can certainly learn about other cultures and adopt positive elements. But here we're talking about foreign occupation. When a foreign entity occupies you, you're not just adopting elements of their culture. The elements of their culture, you don't get to choose what to adopt as part. They are imposing it on you. Let me take an example given by the Talmud. If I, if I, um, when the Romans come in, if the Romans weren't in, if there was just the Romans were in Rome and I was here, I could look at the Roman culture and say, oh, look at the way that they make bread. This is a great way of making bread. And then someone goes to Rome, learns how to make bread, and then comes back to Israel and teaches the Israelis how to make bread. That's great. But that's not what's happening here. You're coming in and saying, we're putting up a bathhouse. We don't want bathhouses. Maybe we want different kinds of bathhouses. You're putting up markets and as Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says, Lo shiv behem zonot. Right? You're, you're, you're creating these markets and then you're creating your culture in it and you're not giving us a choice about it. So now our children, when they walk through the markets, they see people of ill repute. We wouldn't build our infrastructure this way. So to a certain extent, I, that's why I think to, you are kind of taking away free will. I don't mean free will in terms of me being able to choose to act this way or to act that way, but you're taking away our rights as a society to develop our country in the way that we want to see it developed, and instead we have to accept whatever you impose on us. The nature, the nature of society is that you are looking around and you are learning from other people. And then if you have the inner strength to stand it and adapt whatever is good for you and throw away whatever is not good for you, you cannot be totally isolated. You, uh, you I, are, look, even uh, though they are building whatever they are building the Romans, you, if you have the inner strength, you are standing it. I, I'm, again, I, I, I think you're right that we can adapt. We're not talking about isolation, but it should, be an, it, should, it should be an adoption of what we want to adopt, not what you're telling us we need to adopt. But what, the way I see it, they take your liberty, but they don't, cannot take your free will. This, this is something that nobody can take from you. They can take your liberty, you can, you can take your herut, but not your... Right. I, I, I do, do want to clarify that again. I don't mean free will in Stila that... Silla is so right. Silla is so right. right. Because we, we live in a society that we have a lot of things around us that we can take it or we can leave it. And that's what, if we have the inner strength, the inner moral to do the right things, that's what we are doing. Yeah, I, again, I'm going to still disagree that's because... It's the free will is here. I, yes, but you're not giving me the choice of which things I get to. You're telling me, listen, take from the Romans what you can get. That's true if I get to choose. 
You're not letting me choose which things I want to accept because I don't want, that's what Shabbat Yochai is saying, we don't want markets if you're going to put zonot in them. We don't want them. We understand that markets are a good thing and it helps develop society, but if the way that you develop markets is in this way, we don't want it. And you're imposing it. You're forcing it on us and we don't want that. But I see it as taking your liberty, taking your chirut, but there is absolutely no way that somebody can touch your free will. It's something that is between you and... Uh, yeah, that, uh, that's, that's the source of Isa. You're right. That's the internal factor. I'm talking about the, yeah. the external effects on free will. So if you, if you don't allow me... <laughs> If you don't allow me to, to exercise my religion, which I was hoping to get to, if you don't allow me to exercise my religion, it's, 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 we should use that term. My, my liberties rather than my wills, that's fine. But, but that's what's happening, is that the Romans were imposing rules that we would never agree to. I think that's what we said in the beginning. Yes, please. I think that the point uh, that you were making with the rabbis, we're talking about a foreign power in Eretz Israel. So my question or my observation is, is their thinking or halakha really relates just to a foreign power in Eretz Israel, or do we expand the philosophy and allow it to be applied anywhere else, or like in today's time where we're living not in Eretz Israel, and let's say that you're living in Russia before, you know, in the 1990s or 80s, and you are being prohibited to practice your religion. However, this is not a foreign power. You are a guest in that location. So how do you handle that? Right. You so know, it, your free will is, is not even an issue there. Yeah, the thing is, in most countries we, come, we came to, as the Jewish people, and this is a very scary thought, in all the countries we came to, what we were looking for was the country that would the most leave us alone. That's whenever we were traveling, we were going to the country that we deem, according to our measurements, to most likely to leave us alone. And, and that's where we were. To the, to, and then we watched. We watched as each country slowly snuck up on us. In, in, in the Soviet, well, in Russia... The Jewish people experience a a a very very um, a very high level of freedom before things started to turn around, and then by the time you come and you would think uh, you would think and this is actually a very strange thing in history, is that human beings kind of have developed more ideas of liberty and more freedom and more civility and all these things as the years go by. If you go from the 1700s to the 1800s to the 1900s, as you move, you watch as people are becoming freer, more democratic, more um, open-minded. Meanwhile, the Jews are being more and more oppressed. So we have less rights and then less rights until by the time you come to, say, Russia in the, in the 1970s, it's hard to find a single individual practicing Jew in the entire country. There were individuals, but, but almost completely decimated because it became illegal to practice religion. And so we, we wanted out, out. Many went to Israel, but where did the rest go? Basically, to the United States. Why? Because we've made uh, we've made an assessment. Uh, now, hopefully, that continues. You know, these are these are um, we we never take these things for granted. You know, we, we like to say if you would have said to a Jew in Spain in 1200 that by the way in 300 years from now you're going to be expelled, he would have laughed at you. 
and said, are you kidding me? Spain is the most open-minded and, and look how much power they give us, how many, uh, the rights that they give us. We had Rabbi Shmuel Hanagid was, the, was second in command. He was like, he was like uh, the vice president of, 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 of the kingdom. We'll be fine. We'll, we can be in Spain forever. And Berlin is the new Yerushalayim, right? These are thoughts that we had, and then just like that, because human beings are human beings. We're fickle, and uh, but but when we're in a different someone else's country, you're right. We're there as a guest. We don't get to dictate to them the way that they should establish the rules for us. But unfortunately it didn't go the other way either. Which is, we came in, and we were told, you have your rights. You can take your rights. Then later, once we've settled in and made ourselves comfortable, then they say to us, well, actually, you know, we've got to, for, for your own protection, or for your own benefit, or for the sake of advancement, we can't have you practice this religion anymore. It's old-fashioned. It's going to get in the way of things. And so then they, that they so yeah, then we, but there... Again, I don't want to say they're taking away our free will, but they're taking away our civil liberties. They are preventing us from doing what we want to do. And we have a much... Um, we, we, ha- we don't have the right to tell someone else how to run their country when we come and visit. Uh, we ha- but we do have a right to claim that when you tell us that you believe in these principles of freedom and liberty, that you shouldn't take it away from us, because that's you know, breaking your side of the contract. But our focus is still going to be on the land of Israel itself. And what we have here is a debate between two rabbis. One rabbi says, listen, I mean, what's he saying? You're right. There are zonot in the markets. There are Romans in our bathhouses. The price of crossing a bridge, the tolls are going up every day. There's a new increase in some bridge somewhere. It's ridiculous. They're charging us money for their bridges. You're right. But you know what? We have bridges. And we have markets. And we have bathhouses. So he's saying, Rabbi Yehuda is saying, forget you're right, there's, there's a lot of bad things. But focus on the benefit, which would mean that Rabbi Yehuda would suggest that if a foreign country is occupying you, it is worth accepting a certain level of, 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 of being imposed and forced against your will to live a certain way for the sake of the benefit. If anything, if anything, one would argue... Um, based on a, another teaching in the Talmud, that the Talmud quotes, uh, I'm not going to go into the whole, the whole subject, but the Talmud tells us, based on a verse in Yeshaya 61, that when we do the right thing, it says, zarim that, that, that the strangers will come, and they will graze your sheep, almost like when God loves us because we're doing the right thing, He's going to get other people to do our work for us. So by having this other nation come in and do all this work for us, we're actually benefiting. We're better off. To which Rabbi Shimon says, "What? What? I, look what they're doing. Look at the look at the results. Look at the purpose behind them. We would rather have less, but it be of our own choice and our own making. And this remains a debate." Um, uh-huh. e- even until today, when it comes to how we want to run the country, um, that we are our, our country and the land of Israel. And this is, this is something we have to think about. Everybody knows that there is an amazing relationship today between the state of Israel and the United States of America. They are allies and good friends. And Bezrat Hashem, it should remain so, because that's very important. The question is, are we better off with the money that, money that we receive from America, but that, that money comes with a price? Are we better off, or are we... So says, the, says Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Yehuda says, take the benefits and enjoy it. Says Rabbi Shimon, you have to measure it against the price. What's the cost? 
If the cost is that we have to let certain influences into our country, that we have to make deals with certain countries that we have to allow, let's say, a certain country that shall remain unnamed to develop their nuclear advancements, yes or no, whatever side you're on, if it's a condition on the money that we are given, is it worth taking the money? So, the... I, I want to, I, I know I'm running out of time, so I want to take this to one place which I think is, is really the emphasis of what we've been focused on today. And, and that's like this. The concept of freedom is very hard to define. Because you can't say, for example, I don't know if you could still say it today, but once upon a time people always used to say in America, it's a free country, I can do what I want. Right? You've all heard that expression. It's a free country. People don't say that anymore, either because it's not a free country in the same way, or because they don't feel it's the same way. But you don't hear people say it's a free country, you can do what you want anymore. But, but the question is, can I do anything in a free country? Can I do anything? No. What can't I do? Now, you don't tell don't, any examples of something that goes against someone else's will or freedom. I'm okay with that. In other words, you could say I can't kill someone because even though it's a free country, I have a right to kill, but that person has a right to live and that person's right to live um, um, defeats my right to kill, right? I, I think that's, 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 that's easy. As, even assuming you have a right to kill. But, but, but what I'm saying is, for example, I'm in a country, I have freedom, and yet, if I get into my vehicle, and I don't put a seatbelt on, I can get a ticket for that. Why? It's a free country. If I want to endanger, there's no one else who's in danger. There's no one else that's not, if there's someone else in the car, maybe. There's no one else in the car. Why, why do I get punished if I don't put on my seatbelt? You're telling me the way that I need to behave. Now, why, is that not, why does that not take away from a free country? Because they will get hurt. They get hurt to go to the hospital, and we'll have to pay for your um, hospitalization, and you might sue your insurance company, and it's not only you who will get hurt. Well, I don't understand. I pay for medical insurance and I pay for for car insurance. Huh? And right. so, so why? You say that if you have a surgery, it's not limitless. It's within certain parameters. You say, yeah, it is a free country, but I agree to accept certain limits, which is the laws of the land. Yeah, but why did the land make those laws? Why are they making laws that affect only my personal choices and don't affect anyone else? Well, they, they affect everybody else's choices. No, I, I, the, example of the, the example of the seatbelt, and again, I, I know I, I wear a seatbelt. Um, this is for the purpose of argument. Right? So, but in the case of a seatbelt, it's purely a personal choice for how much protection I would like to place around myself while I'm driving the car. And, and, and you're, I get it. It's good advice, and I'll do it. But why are you imposing it on me? So, so what, what this means is that we're allowing, and we're accepting, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing, for people to impose things on us because ultimately it's for our own good. Which means that all of us are accepting that there, there are, we're placing in whatever country we're in, whoever is the authority, that not only can they command us in a way that protects us from each other, they are able to command us in a way that protects us from ourselves. And that is very, very dangerous. A seatbelt is not a bad example of this, because what do I lose by wearing a seatbelt? Nothing. But once they start, and I'm sure everyone can think of examples, once you start imposing what you think is for my benefit, in cases where I have to lose out because of it, so for example, if you put up a I, I'm going to use this example because you could see how often do the rabbis invoke the word, um, you know, they're saying, you put up a market. 
You put up a market in Roman style. You know what exists in a Roman style market? A brothel. And you know what the Romans were saying? This is advancement. It's good for you. It's, it's, it's a healthy thing to have in your society. Maybe you need a little bit of a, the spread of the pox or, or whatever it is that they were... But they were claiming, the Romans were saying, this is a good thing. And so we're imposing. And you have to imagine that when you've got government-sanctioned um, um, brothels in the land of Israel in Roman days that there were people who would otherwise never have dreamed or never considered doing something like this, who are now feeling like they are doing a good thing for the betterment of the people and for the betterment of the country and for the betterment of themselves. So, too often, we don't even realize the kinds of effects that any foreign influence have on us. And to a certain extent, it becomes like a Yetzirah. What do I mean by that? In a Yetzirah, you know, we always talk about, I'm fighting with my Yetzirah, with my evil inclination. So the way people picture it is like the, the, the devil on this shoulder and the, and the angel on this shoulder, and they're talking into my ear, and I'm trying to decide who to listen to. That's not the Yetzirah. The Yetzirah is inside of you. The Yetzirah is you. But everybody knows that even though you have this Yetzirah inside you, there's a part of you that really wants to do the right thing. But once things happen, you kind of fall into these traps of all the negati- negative things. The same thing is true of a foreign occupation. Anytime you make a relationship with another country, you, unless you look really closely, it's very hard to recognize the effects that they have. Now, there were a few other places in the Talmud, I guess we didn't get to that, but, but I think this is the primary source for this outright debate. How do we measure and balance the relationships that we have? And is it worth having foreign soldiers? And that would translate today. Foreign tanks, foreign armies, walking through our cities, is that, and they're protecting us? Is that a protection or is that an occupation? Lord Oliver Cromwell, after after they overthrew the the British um, um, crown, you know, they, what did they call themselves? They called themselves protectors. Right? It's always funny because if you want to know, you know what, what someone isn't, look at what they title themselves and you, you should assume that they're always the opposite of whatever they title themselves. Right? It's, uh, especially those, but the people who call themselves protectors are usually occupiers. And this is a big question. And we'll, we'll finish with the following. The Torah tells us, in if you follow my statutes, and it says, a sword will not pass through your land. And what our sages teach us, recently discussed this, is that we're told that when we do the right thing, not only will there not be an army that passes through your country in battle, but there won't even be an army that passes through your country in peace. Our sages say, shalom, which means that no army will pass through your land even to go somewhere else. And the question is, why, why not? Who cares if some foreign army wants to pass through? The, the, the uh, Talmud discusses when Egypt, the army of Egypt, was trying to go to attack the, the, um, the Babylonians, how is Egypt supposed to get to Babel without passing through Israel? That was the only way. So we said, no, we don't want it. Why not? The answer is because there's something about having liberty, freedom, and being in charge of yourself. When a foreign army is passing through you, even if they don't do anything, they could, and it takes away your complete freedom. And the more free you are, the more human you are. The greater your ability to choose, the more meaningful your choices are. And I would say that if the government were to remove the requirement 
to, to, to wear a seatbelt, we would all still wear a seatbelt and we would be better for it because we would choose it. However, the government realizes that there would be a lot of lazy people and a lot of stubborn people who wouldn't, and so we're taking away everyone's ability to choose in order to save some lives. But it's dangerous, and that's what our sages are trying to warn us about. Yes, these are great things, but look at all the other effects of all of this. I don't agree with you totally. Uh, please, uh, tell Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.